Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. I know that with the new year, many of you are thinking about goals and resolutions and those sorts of things. And I would hope that maybe your mind has gone to spiritually, what do I want to do and, and how do I want to grow spiritually? I would hope that there's a just baseline goal of, I want to be closer to the Lord at the end of the year than I am at the beginning of the year. And know that over the next two Sundays, there's a couple things that we're going to put right in front of you to try to help facilitate growth and you just being aware of some opportunities. So one is next Sunday, we will have a next steps day. And that day really is designed to make things that may be a good next step for you, very bottom shelf. So it could be baptism, it could be coming to Intro to Harvest, it could be jumping into one of our groups, it could be serving on a team, developing some connections and deepened relationships with some other believers. There's a variety of things that we'll put right there and we'll try to make that easy on you, but be aware of that and kind of have that in the back of your head that that's next Sunday. And then January 17th, is the kind of spring semester, or trimester, I guess I should say, of our Wednesday nights and what we do. So most of you would know, but a few of you may not. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m., uh, we're here, and there's a, a whole host of things that happen. There's ladies' groups and men's groups and couples' groups and all kinds of things for adults. Then the teens have their own teen hour that they do their thing. The kids have a full-functioning kids' ministry, and, uh, and a lot of them are here. So it, I know it's wintertime. Oftentimes it's, it's dark and dreary, and people are like, I would like something to do. I would like something for my kids to do. Uh, I would suggest just consider uh, Wednesday nights and jumping into a Bible study or getting your kids in the Awana program, those sorts of things. Um, so January 17th, we kick off. I know it's winter, but we call it the spring semester because it actually lasts us all the way till the end of May. Um, so consider that and be aware, and we would love to have you. Um, you can sign up for all those things even next week. We'll, we'll make them really easy for you and readily available. Uh, but keep them in the back of your mind and, and jump in where you can. Well, Colossians 2 is where we're at. We have two weeks together in this little mini sermon series, uh, and really it's three weeks. I'm here because I preached at the beginning of our angel sermon series on angel-worshiping mysticism. And if you remember, we were in Colossians 2 for that. We were in verses 17 and verses 18. But on either side of this angel-worshiping mysticism is legalism and asceticism. And I'll try to define both of those a little bit for you over the next couple weeks. But there are these two other ways that people can really get off track spiritually, even though they're well-intentioned and they're trying to do what's right, that they're led astray and end up spiritually malformed and malnourished because of it. And Paul does a great job of trying to articulate through this entire chapter how we should be living life in Jesus and what we should be aware of. And chapter 2, just to recap it for you very br briefly, Paul tells this church that, like, I want you to have full knowledge of Jesus because in Jesus, that's where all of the treasure is. So stand fast with faith in Jesus, and as you've received Jesus, so walk you in him. And he gets to verse number 8, and he says, beware. And if there was music, like, with the Bible, I think there'd be, like, a dun-dun-dun. Like, beware. Beware of what? Beware lest any man spoil you or ruin you through philosophy and empty deceit. It's after the tradition of men. It's not after Christ. And you're left saying, okay, what, what are these systems of thought or these philosophies, these deceitful traditions of men that aren't after Jesus, what are they? And he takes a, a breath and he begins to just elaborate on Jesus and praise Jesus. And he eventually gets to them in verse number 16 and spells out legalism and mysticism and asceticism. And this morning I want us to tackle just two verses, but they're two verses that center on legalism. So here is verse number 16. Let no man therefore judge you. That's the basic command in meat or drink or respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. 
Now, let me give you a working definition of legalism. Legalism is when you grade someone's spirituality, whether it be your own or someone else's, but generally someone else's, by their ability to keep man-made rules. It is when you take out this man-made measuring stick and you begin to hold it up to people and say, you're spiritual or not spiritual based off of our man-made rules. Obeying God's rules is not legalism. Preaching or teaching God's rules is not legalism. When you obey God's rules, that's obedience. But man's rules are an entirely different thing. And when you begin to subscribe to man's rules and judge yourself or others spiritually by their ability to submit to man's rules, that is deeply problematic. Uh, You may have heard from someone, a Christian or someone else, probably someone who is very legalistic, that legalism is adding works to salvation. And that is the far extreme side of legalism, where you not only judge people spiritually by their ability to keep man-made rules, but you begin to judge if they're saved or not by their ability to keep rules. Sometimes God, sometimes man-made ones. That's the very far side of legalism. But there is a far more prevalent, commonplace side of legalism, which is just judging someone spiritually. And if someone says, listen, legalism is, is adding works to salvation, and I believe that you're saved by faith in Jesus, so I'm not legalistic, red flag. They're about to give you a boatload of their man-made rules that they want you to subscribe to, and they're about to be very legalistic, but they're trying to tell you, no, I'm not. So what is this legalism that Paul is articulating here? What does he say? Here's what he says in verse 16. He says, kick spiritual intimidation to the curb. The basic command is let no man therefore judge you. Now, that's a curious command. It's kind of awkward at first glance. How am I supposed to prevent them from judging me? Like, how am I in control of their thoughts? How am I in control of their actions? Like, what am I going to do, twist their arm behind their back and put them in citizen's arrest? Like, how do I control them from judging me? And the idea is not so much that you can control someone else's thoughts or you can control someone else's actions. What he is saying is you need to control your response to the people who would judge you. Don't let someone intimidate you spiritually. If they come and they try to judge you or they try to hold their man-made rules up to you, don't let them force them on you. Don't let them criticize your liberty in Jesus. Do not subscribe to that. That's what he's saying. Eleanor Roosevelt was famous for saying that people can't make you feel inferior without your consent. And I think that's sort of in the vein of what Paul is saying here of do not let them come to you with their system, their philosophies and traditions, and let them intimidate you spiritually and make you feel spiritually less than. And this happens over and over and over and over again. I have, I've just grown up in church my whole life and even being in a variety of churches because I grew up in Kentucky and went to uh, Bible college in Arkansas and then got a master's degree in Southern California and worked at a church in Northern California and came to Pennsylvania. And, and every church is different than every region of the country is different. And so I've seen from church to church or region to region the different traditions, the different things that pop up that people want to enforce or make a big deal of. And it does vary. Honestly, it varies. You know, when you're in the South and everyone's a tobacco farmer, smoking isn't nearly as big of a deal as when you're in the North. That's just how it goes. So this can, it can kind of uh, shapeshift on you depending on, on where you're at, but nevertheless, it's there. I've heard, I've heard, Countless, like billions of things it feels like where someone tried to judge you spiritually by their own man-made rule. So for example, you know, if you were really spiritual, you guys back there, you wouldn't sit in the back, you'd sit in the front. This is where the real spiritual people sit. Isn't that right, Rick? <laughs> this, this is the glory zone. These are where people want to be close to the action. This, this is where it's really at. Like, what does it have to do with anything? What does it have to do with anything where, where you sit? But it can be a measurement of spirituality to some people, Right? I decided years ago that I really wanted to be a good Christian, and I wanted to be an A+, plus, not just an A-, minus. so I decided I wouldn't dance at weddings. You know, that, that's for other people. Well, what's going on there? What's going on is I'm looking down my nose at you for something that God was far less than, than clear on. You know, once you sell out for Jesus, then, then you won't let your kids watch Disney movies either. 
You know, there's, there's these agendas. And, and every movie does have an agenda. That is fair. But there's agendas that they're trying to put down, you know, their throat. You know, I, I, would, I wouldn't go to Disney if I were you. I'd probably mature a little bit. You know, if, if one, once you understand more, then you, you probably will get your tattoos removed. You understand that really that, that's not something God would want for you. You go trick-or-treating? Don't you know it's the devil's holiday? Like that candy, that, that has Satan written all over it, and if you eat that candy, that's bad. And you do Elf on the Shelf? You, you should scratch Elf on the Shelf and get you in a pew. You need more Bible. What is your problem? Like, I, I could go on and on and on. And sometimes they're comical, and sometimes there's a semblance of wisdom to them, but they're all man-made rules that God was never clear on that people want to start measuring other people by. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't let them intimidate you spiritually. Don't let them judge you. Why would I not let them judge you? And the answer to that question biblically is because you already got to judge. When someone comes to you and wants to judge you spiritually, it's like, no, no. My personal org chart, there is someone above me. There's this judge seat, this Lord seat, this someone who gets to dictate if I'm spiritual or not. But that seat is filled. King Jesus sits in that seat, and he's not leaving a vacancy anytime soon. So unfortunately, you can't occupy that position. This is exactly what uh, the same author, Paul here in Colossians, gets at in Romans chapter number 14. And I so love this passage of Scripture. Romans 14, verse 8, look at it with me if you would. He says, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. We oftentimes will sing in church, we'll sing a song called Christ, our hope in life and death. That's rooted in this verse, that we're the Lord's, life or death. Verse number 9, for to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. So Jesus is special. He's the one who died for sins. He's the one that rose from the dead. And because he's special, he's the one that gets to be the Lord. Verse number 10, why dost thou judge thy brother? If Jesus is the Lord, why are you doing the judging? Or why dost thou set at not thy brother or cast them over to the side or, or put them on the sidelines? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Get the idea? They don't stand before you. You're not the Lord. You didn't die for sins. You didn't raise from the dead. So they're not going to give an account for you. Verse number 11, it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us will give an account of himself to God. That I will not stand before you and give an account to you and you will not stand before me and give an account to me. We will all stand before God and give an account for, to God. So don't act like you're the Lord and don't act like you're the judge. Verse number uh, 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. And I don't know if it could be any more clear than that. Don't do this. This is not your job. Not your circus, not your monkeys. Stop. So what should I do with all this free time? I've been judging everybody left and right. What am I supposed to do now? Well, judge this rather. Look in the mirror that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Why don't you look at you and understand you're going to give an account for you and make sure you're not hindering someone else spiritually and be really concerned with you. And it's in that same vein that Paul comes to the Colossians and he says, when I'm telling them not to do it, but if someone does come do it, and they will, when they come do it, don't allow them that authority. Do not allow them to spiritually intimidate you. It's not your job to run around with God's ruler measuring people, much less your own man-made ruler. Don't do that. It's been a couple summers ago, but I was listening to a podcast, and this story just, it just stuck with me for some reason. I don't know the people, but this uh, man who was in his 60s was telling the story about raising his kids in church and his kids left the church and really seemed like they wanted nothing to do with God. And they had found this, his kid had found this church in his adult life and had gone and began to grow and was, and was just like 
spiritually alive and was inviting his dad to come and, and his mom to come. And so they, I mean, they wanted to be with their kid. They were super excited with what God was doing in his life. So they went to church with them. Only this church was like a little different than the church that they were used to going to. And the dad described like sitting there and basically just judging everybody the whole time. Like I'm happy for my son, but just looking down his nose. And he, and he honed in on one particular guy who was helping to lead worship. And he said, like, his clothes were just, like, more disheveled than I think that you should have had, like, at church. He wasn't as buttoned up, and he had tattoos on his arms, and he was, you know, raising his hand while he was praising, and, like, what are you doing trying to show off? Like, we don't need to look at you, buddy. And he's just judging him the whole time, but he didn't know that he was sitting next to the man's wife and child. They were, like, in the same row. So the worship is done, and he comes and sits down, and then towards the end of the service, they had communion. He said, I'm here with an earshot of this guy. And he grabbed his wife and he grabbed his kid. And they got together and he started to like pray. And began to thank God and Jesus for what Jesus had done for him. And tears began to stream down his face. And he said, it was like in that moment that my, my judgy spirit became so apparent to me. And it was like it melted away. And I spent communion confessing and telling God like, I am wrong for this. Like, this guy could probably teach me something about his heart for the Lord and what's going on here. And here I am the whole time just judging, judging, judging. And that's, I think Paul's trying to get at this idea. That we wouldn't take our own man-made rules and begin to automatically assume that someone was spiritual or unspiritual because they don't talk exactly like us or look exactly like us or do the things that are that are our inventions, our traditions. I think at its core, what he's trying to say over and over again is that God's rules are for everyone, but your rules are for you. God has some rules. Keep them. They're for everybody. And you know what? You have some rules too. And there's nothing wrong with that. All of us have preferences. All of us have what I would call house rules. How many of you have ever played the game of Monopoly? Anyone ever played Monopoly? Okay. I've played Monopoly with a whole bunch of different people. And every time you go to someone else's house to play Monopoly, it's different. You ever notice that? Because there are the rules of the game. Like I get $200 when I pass go. That's just there. But the house rules that people put along with the rules of the game, they vary, right? So you have God's rules that are standard. You can also, you can have some house rules. You can have things for yourself that you just learn. This is wise for me or this is good for me or something that, you, that you're imposing on yourself. You can even have rules for your household. Parents, it's part of your job to lead your children. And when they're grown, they can adopt some of their own house rules. But you can have house rules for your own children or for your, with your spouse. But when you begin to take your house rules and act as though people are not as spiritual as you because they don't keep your rules, that is a problem. That's not only a problem, that's detrimental to your own spiritual growth and to theirs. And when God wants someone to add to the Bible, I'm sure he'll give you a ring and you can put like first and second opinions, you know, in the back of here. But until then, they're your rules. They're not gospel. They're, they're, not, they're not in his word. If it's in his word, great. If it's not, then that's just yours. You don't, get, you don't get to upgrade the word of God, right? Like God doesn't need help. It's not like, hey, I did a good job. I got like, I don't know, 56 rules. Could you help me out and give me another 56? He doesn't need an assist. He's fine. His word is fine as it stands. So your rules are for you. He begins to apply this in specific ways that were, in the first century, very controversial. And to a degree, so are today. Now, there's a lot more than this that you could add in today, but he begins to get to the heart of this in diets and drinks and days. Here's what he says uh, first. Don't let them judge you. Well, judge you how? Well, he's not talking about Disney movies just yet, you know. He's not talking about wearing ties to church. That's, that's been, I've told people over the years, when they've come to our Intro to Harvest class, we'll, we'll tell them here's who we are and here's what we believe and these sorts of things. And it's honestly, it's pretty glossy. Like we try to hit like the good parts. But we'll admit, like we, we got some warts, you know. We're, we're not perfect. We got some things we're working through. And sometimes people ask like, what are, what are those warts? What are you working through? 
And I won't tell them all of them. You know, you don't want to scare them away just, just at first. But I'll, my first one, my go-to is like, we're recovering legalists. You know, not all of us, but many of us are like trying to, to recover and maybe have some history in legalism. I can remember this summer I had a conversation with Doris Hanna, uh, formerly Doris Pellick, who was the founding pastor and pastor's wife of the church. Doris and her husband were here from the get-go. And we had a, a number of great conversations. Uh, many of you know uh, their daughter, Angela, has been uh, wrestling with brain cancer and actually got a pretty negative report this last week. So keep praying for her, if you don't mind. But I remember asking Doris, what would you do different? Like, what would you change? And she said, you know, Ted and I had a conversation when we left Harvest, like on our way, we were moving to Florida, like we just left our home and we are driving to our new home in Florida. We had a long conversation, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing what she told me, but about how we would have been less legalistic, that there were things that we focused on that we didn't even really believe in our hearts needed to be focused on, but like where we went to school, they focused on them, and like our parents focused on them, but we, we put the screws to people on particular issues that we wish we would not have. And one of them that she specifically mentioned was dress. Um, <clears throat> we, we're all here in church, okay? I do not care one iota if you wear a suit and a tie and a three-piece, a vest, dress shoes, or if you wear jeans and a t-shirt. I don't care. I don't think God cares. I think he would have told us if he cared. What matters is your heart. And you can do different things at the same time. Like, I've met people who are like, I want to give God my best. So I, I want to wear a suit and a tie. And oftentimes they're like, I wish you would too, Pastor. You know, but I, I want to give God my best. <laughs> Which is fine. You're allowed to have a preference. You know, my smart aleck response to that that I never say is then get a tuxedo. But no one ever does that. <laughs> but I, I get that, like, that's your heart. But there's someone else who's like, look. Go to Walmart today, no one's walking around in a suit. Like culturally, it's changed. The bankers don't wear suits, and the coaches don't wear suits, and the TV personalities don't wear suits. It's just changed, and I want guests to feel comfortable, and, and I've, they're probably going to come in jeans and a sweater or something, so I'm going to wear jeans and a sweater to make them comfortable. Which one's right, which one's wrong? Neither. As long as you're doing it to the, for the Lord, that's fine. The problem is when you take either you begin to despise someone who wears a suit and like look at you, like looking all fancy, you're trying to impress everybody, and you're, you're looking down your nose at them, or you're wearing a suit and like what's your problem? You know, I sit by you every week, I got you a Christmas present. It's a tie. You should wear it next week. You know, <laughs> like that's the problem. Now you've taken what is a man-made rule. If you're like, no, I'm, I'm going to be buried in a suit, I'm going to go to church in a suit. No. Great, great. Just don't judge someone else who does it differently. Because there is no suit verse. It's not there. Those are God's rules versus man's rules, and that's a man's rule. So what are they looking at? Well, diets, drinks, and days. Now, diet isn't one that we argue about too much anymore. If you come from a Seventh-day Adventist background, then you would have this, because both the Sabbath day and a diet is big in a Seventh-day Adventist background, um, which was very common uh, where I lived in Northern California. There was, there was a lot of, of Seventh-day Adventists. I don't meet as many around here. So you probably haven't had a lot of, of conversations along those lines. But it is interesting to me how this conversation on diet is becoming a quote-unquote moral issue secularly in our culture. In anticipation for the sermon over the last uh, couple weeks here, maybe 10 days, I watched a couple documentaries on Netflix that were on diets you are what you eat. There was another one that I can't remember what it was about. It was about plant-based dieting. And a lot of it was very intriguing to see the science and to see, like, comparisons of what it does to inflammation or what it does to um, uh, your cortisol levels or this or that or the other. But it was very interesting to me how a conversation on an omnivore diet and eating meat versus a plant-based diet became very moral in that show very quickly. 
and it was look at the, at the meat production industry and is there animal cruelty there and look at all the greenhouse emissions from all these cows. If we ate less steak, then, the, then the, the earth wouldn't warm as much. And if it didn't warm as much, then we probably could survive longer. And at the end of it, it became like if, there's a, if you're going to Longhorn today and there's a steak on the end of your fork, you must not care about humanity. Like that was the sum total of it. I'm like, wow, this just got really moral and really judgy super fast. And this can happen with people where it's like, I thought you were a Christian and that you cared about people. Why would you eat chickens? Like, well, I don't know. There's not a no chicken rule. I think if God cared, he would put it there, right? So there's diet is something that they, especially a kosher diet, that was a huge issue for people that were, the church is being birthed in a Jewish context. And to have a kosher diet and not eating bacon and all these things, like that was a massive thing that they argued about for a long time that was a hot topic that they were trying to be very clear. The apostles were, look, God does not forbid to stop judging each other over this stuff. There was also drink. You say, what drink? It's not Kool-Aid. I'll give you a hint. Um, <clears throat> it's not Coke. Those weren't around. Although Coke was, anyone ever hear a sermon from Lester Roloff? Anyone know the name Lester Roloff here? So, okay, I see a smattering of hands. And this is not a condemnation of Lester Roloff. I never met the guy. Um, but Lester was famous for many things, one of which was that he moralized diets and drinks, especially like soda. And the argument went like this. And this is where when Paul says that the legalism can be like a philosophy, like a system of thought that is deceptive. And you can be beguiled. Like it's tricky. It's crafty. The, here's how it went. God wants what's best for you, right? Uh, uh, maybe, um, I think. Well, wouldn't God, wouldn't good health be what's best for you? Sometimes, but not always. I mean, Job got sick, and, but uh, maybe. I mean, good health is a good thing. Well, is water or is Coca-Cola better for you and your health? Well, water, I'm pretty sure. I don't think that one's that debatable. Well, if God wants what's best for you and good health is best for you and water leads to good health, then if you drink Coke, then Coke obviously is bad for you. So you are thumbing your nose at what's best for you and what God wants for your life, i.e. Coke is sin. And it's like, whoa, time out. Like I was kind of tracking with, with this system of thought here, but we got to Coke is sin. And that's a man-made rule, right? Pastor Joe has a Coke on the front row right there. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> good for you <laughs> but it was it preached right stop sinning and there are people who are like I was a pastor's kid and I hated it when Lester Roloff came to town because we had to take all of our coke out of the fridge and drink only water for a week you know because he was going to judge us like that's unhealthy the drink that's actually being talked about here if you read Romans 14, which is one of the best cross-comparison passages, and these, these diets and these drinks are, are elaborated on much more clearly, wine is the one that is specifically mentioned. And God is abundantly clear. Drunkenness is sin. That's not debatable. If anyone drinks to the point to where they're drunk, chaos ensues. It is, it is a sin. It is, it is against God's word. God is also abundantly clear. There's no debate that Wisdom and caution better be exhibited, especially if you're in a position of leadership. And people love still, in the first century and today, love still to debate in churches, you know, wine in moderation, can I or can't I, and, and argue about that. I can send you a whole sermon series on it if you want. I'm not going to articulate it today. The point is that it was becoming very judgy. It was becoming this, this spiritual litmus test, and Paul is trying to move people away from that. He's actually talking about days as well, and this is what he mentions the most. Holy day. He mentions this idea of new moon or of Sabbath days. Now, holy day could be as broad as the day you worship. I must say, uh, for self-proclaimed recovering legalists, I'm super proud of you all, okay? Christmas Eve, we had zero church services in the morning and only two at night. Not one of you sent me an email not one of you bent my ear in, in the lobby. And I'm sure there's more than a few of you that were like, I really would have preferred to come during the morning and not at night. I'm sure there's more than a few of you that would have preferred that. 
But the fact that no one, like, threw a hissy fit about it was, like, really impeccable. And, like, hats off. Round of applause for us, okay? Or, or not, okay. <clears throat> Literally, it was, it was really good. God never said, go to church on Sunday morning. Did you know that? Now, we're not changing our service times to Sunday nights. Like, we like, we like Sunday mornings. God did say to assemble and regularly and even more often as you see the day approaching. He did say not to forsake that assembly, but he never articulated Sunday morning. Now, Sunday has been a long-standing tradition from like the early, early days of the church, but even that is very different than most people would think. So you have the church in a Jewish culture, Sabbath is Saturday, everybody's off. And there, by and large, although the text will say you don't have to observe the Sabbath, it was still culturally normative. But Sabbath was not Saturday as we would think of Saturday. We think, you know, 12 to 12. Theirs ran 6 to 6, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So Sabbath was 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday. If you ever go to Israel on a weekend, you'll experience this. Everything shuts down and then it opens back up at 6 p.m. Saturday. So the Lord's Day started 6 p.m. Saturday, our time. And the early church would worship on what we would consider Saturday evening, although they considered it to be the Lord's Day because it was the start of Sunday. They would worship at night, oftentimes at dark. This is why you can read of Paul preaching on the Lord's Day, and it gets to midnight, and there's candles written or lit, and this guy falls out of the window backwards and, like, kills himself because it was late at night on Saturday. Or they would meet very early on Sunday morning, like when it was dark, so that they could worship and then they could go to work because everyone already took the day before off. So everybody's working on Sunday, which goes into another, like if you work on Sunday, that's against God's commandments. Like, nah, no. And I am, I'm 1,000% for you prioritizing worship and not because work will crowd out the spiritual if you let it. I am, I am all for that. But the idea that somehow you couldn't go to church and then go to work three hours later is not something the Bible ever says. I don't know if it's recommendable, but it's not something the Bible ever says. But there was all this judgment on, on holy days. There was all this judgment on, on new moons, new moons being these special days that they would celebrate, these sacrificial days. This begins to kind of work its way into several different religions. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would, this would apply to them, like Jehovah's Witnesses won't celebrate their birthday. That would be kind of in the vein of a new moon, like a special day. And the idea is that, well, birthdays are about glory and self and all about you, and we should put a spotlight on God and not on ourselves. so you can't sing happy birthday or have a birthday party or celebrate your birthday because that would be unspiritual. Once again, that's a man-made thing. If you don't want to celebrate your birthday because you want your birthday to be all about God, fine. I'm sure the people that don't love gift-giving would gladly comply with that. But don't make it a spiritual issue. Puritans actually, Puritans used to protest Christmas and celebrating December 25th. They would purposely go to work on December 25th as, as a way of, of protesting that specific quote-unquote holy day. And this, this is something that isn't super strong in our culture today, but nevertheless, it's still there where people take man-made rules and judge each other spiritually. There's also... Of these ideas, not just of, of a holy day or a new moon, but Sabbath days. Once again, a Seventh-day Adventist background would, would argue hard about this. But there's so many litmus tests that we have created for judging our spirituality that God never intended for us to create. Now, to be clear, if you want to observe the Sabbath day in the way that, you know, Jewish people traditionally observe the Sabbath day, or if you want to have a Passover meal, or if you want to, you could go all the way into Lent and observing Lent or not, Good Friday. Uh, I got a scathing email one year because our, our academy here, we had half-day school on Good Friday, and it was like, don't you know if you were spiritual, you would not do school at all on Good Friday. That's a holy day, you know, and it was like, eh, there's no rule that says you can't go to school half-day on Good Friday. Um, uh, Pentecost, so if you have a Methodist background, that's, that's a bigger deal there, wearing red and celebrating Pentecost. All these things, they could be good traditions. You can do them. You can celebrate them. They're not wrong, but it is wrong to the extent that you now begin to judge other people because they don't do that man-made tradition. That's where it becomes very, very off-kilter. So 
What do you do? You learn, first of all, to distinguish between biblical principles and personal preferences. Biblical principles are there. You want to hold those with a closed fist and not let go of them. Personal preferences are also there. You have them and so do I. How many of you, just out of curiosity, would prefer it to be a smidge warmer in this room when we have Sunday services? You you think it's cold, a little warmer. How many of you would prefer for it to be a little cooler? It's a little too warm for you, okay? How many think it's just right? Okay, now, see, don't send me an email. You you see what I'm dealing with? (laughs) This, all of us have a different preference. That's fine. We hold those with a loose hand. We're not putting in our bylaws of our constitution, we will set the temperature at 71.5 degrees to eliminate all confusion and all all arguments over the temperature. No, no, no. Biblical principles, hold on to. Personal preferences, loose hands. Even methodologies, loose hands. Now, I could apply this a thousand ways, but there is, it is undoubtedly crystal clear in the Bible, if you are a follower of Jesus, you would take that message of Jesus and you would give it to other people, to a lost and dying world who do not know Jesus, and you would share your faith. You say, okay, I'm going to share my faith. How should I do that? Pick away. Should I get a track, like a a little card about heaven and hell or something and hand it to people? Should I go door to door and and knock on their doors? Uh, Should I post on Facebook all the time? Should I write a book and try to give it to my coworkers? Should I take my coworker to lunch and just say, hey, let me share with you what Jesus has done in my life? Yes, D, all of the above. Do whatever you want. There is no go to a door or street preach or write a book or talk to your coworker. What matters is that you're holding the principle and that your life is reflecting Jesus and your lips are speaking of Jesus regularly. It does not matter the personal preference on exactly how that is expressed to somebody else. Does that make sense? So you distinguish between biblical principles and personal preferences and then you be sure that your preferences do not become your prejudices. That does not become this thing by which you evaluate the rest of the world and and try to see if they are spiritual or not. Some of you would prefer more hymns. Some of you would prefer less hymns. I have strong, not just a preference, I have strong preferences on education of children, education of my own children, strong opinions even. But I have to step back and understand that is a preference and an opinion, even if it's a strong one, and not something whereby I should judge some other family who does it a different way, that somehow I should judge them spiritually, whether they are public school or charter school or homeschool or private school. I should allow flexibility there and not make that a prejudice. These items that were there and are there to this day need to be understood and held very loosely. Now, here's how this works in my experience. Starts off good, then it turns real bad. We're going to take someone as an example, not in this room. We'll pick a fictional character. We'll call him Ralphie Rules, okay? So Ralphie Rules has a heart to to please God. You tell me, good thing or bad thing? Good. Thank you, Brennan. Ralphie Rules struggles with some stuff, though. Let's say that Ralphie Rules struggles with alcoholism, he, he, he really, I mean, the bottle gets the better of him over and over again. He's been sober now for two years. But Ralphie Rules, in an effort to stay clean and sober, has put a few house rules in his life just to help him and protect him. One of them is that he's not going to go to uh, a restaurant that's like a bar and grill, like Applebee's, right? Applebee's is half restaurant, then there's like a bar in the middle of it. And this is tempting for Ralphie. And it just, he, all he wants to do is move from his booth over to the bar and drink all day. And he's learned it's just better for me. Now, sidestep for just a second. If Ralphie Rules is going to control himself spiritually just with a list of rules, that's a bad idea. And actually, like Scripture tells you as much. And Ralphie needs to learn about life in Jesus and life in the Spirit. But he has this. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with Ralphie saying, you know what, I think that it would help me if I just kind of put this off to the side. Uh, And my own personal upbringing, my pastor who was from 0 to 18 in my church, he would not go to a restaurant that served alcohol, period. He wouldn't do it. He, he would not go to a grocery store and buy groceries from a grocer that served alcohol uh, or a gas station. And, and the thought went like this. 
God says drunkenness is bad. Yes? Yes. What leads to drunkenness? Alcohol. Yes? Yeah. Well, if alcohol leads to drunkenness, and drunkenness leads to abuse, and drunkenness leads to uh, people driving drunk and killing other people, why not stay as far away as I possibly can? I don't want to support the alcohol industry at all, right? So I'm going to stay as far away from that. But it turned into and evolved into if you go to Applebee's, you're okay with people driving drunk and killing people. And it's like, yeah, I think that that's different, right? This, this like, personal standard became very moralized, and it was the equivalent of saying if you buy ammo, then you're okay with people shooting up schools. And it's like, no, the logic breaks down. That's, that's not what's happening when I buy a gun or I buy ammo, that I'm okay with mass shootings. Not at all. But pe- secularly and Christian, people play this game. So, but let's say I got distracted from Ralphie. I apologize. <laughs> Ralphie has a standard. And Ralphie comes to church, and someone sits next to Ralphie every, every week, and they're like, Ralphie, dude, let's go to lunch after church. And he's great. I'd love to. Why don't we go to Applebee's? Okay, now Ralphie has a decision. Ralphie can be humble and can say, listen, you probably don't know this, but, like, I, I have a long track record of struggling with, with alcohol I've been clean and sober for a couple years. And that environment, I know it's, it's, it's probably like it doesn't even cross your mind. But for me, it just it doesn't help me. Could we pick somewhere else? Ralphie can be humble about it. Or Ralphie can do what is most often the case. His spiritual pride can creep in. And now he'll try to make it seem as though he's more spiritual for his rule. Oftentimes he'll affix a verse to it. You know what? I just learned that I want to abstain from all appearances of evil. I wouldn't want someone to think that I was getting drunk at Applebee's, which we see all the time, right? Um, I wouldn't want someone to think that. So because I really just want to do things God's way, I don't think I can go to Applebee's with you. Now, that's very different. That's very different. And now, in this spiritual pride, Ralphie begins to teach other people. So now, Ralphie's a group leader, and Ralphie's talking to a group, and he's like, teaching, and you know what, I, I mean, I've, I remember years ago, I prayed about it, and God spoke to me, and I just made the decision that I'm, I'm just not going to go anywhere that, that serves alcohol. And you know what, maybe one day God will lead you to that same decision. But, and now he's imposing his conscience on other people or what works for him, and then there's Bob in his group who wants to lead the group with him, and he's like, yeah, Rafi, can you put me under your wing? Well, listen, Ted told me the other week that he saw you at Applebee's, and once you mature a little bit, then maybe you can step up to the plate and you can help. And what's happening here? What's happening is legalism. What's happening is someone is taking their man-made rule, which was a good house rule for them, and it has evolved into this way to judge and evaluate everyone else spiritually. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, Paul answers this question for us, and he tells us to stop chasing the shadows. Verse 17. All these things, Sabbath, new moons, holy days, diets, days, drinks, they're a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. This is the shadow land. If you pursue this, you're going you're, to you're have nothing. You're going to have no substance. I have never hugged a shadow. I've never kissed a shadow. I've never put a picture of my children's shadows in a frame on my wall. I want to hug them and kiss them, and I want to put a picture of them because that is the real substance. The shadow is just this faint silhouette of what really is the substance. And what he's trying to say is that substance, that body, the real deal, all the treasure, everything you need is actually on Jesus. So don't be distracted from the real thing and get in the shadow lands and chase the shadows. Stay focused on Jesus. I heard in all, this is close to the end. I'm not going to end with it, but it's real close to the end. Years ago, I heard a pastor say that legalism at its core, and I wrote it down, and I, I never forgot it. It's birthed in fear, it's raised in prison, it reproduces uniformity, and it dies joyless and rebellious. And I found that to be so true. Oftentimes it's birthed in fear. Well, what will happen? There'll be chaos in the streets, anarchy, if we don't make a rule for everything, for all these people. In an attempt to do something good, oftentimes parents, oftentimes pastors, oftentimes churches, will make a rule for everything that far exceeds what God ever said. Because they're scared of, of what will happen. It's like, 
You're assuming that you can do a good job of controlling people with your rules. That's a bad assumption. It ends up being raised in prison. It boxes you in progressively. Little by little by little, it shrinks in your freedom. I worked at a teen camp my whole teenage life. I don't really know what a summer is like without school because when we left school, we just went to camp and we worked at camp. We were there all summer. And we would have a variety of churches come through teen camp. And there was one church that stood out in particular in my mind as I thought about the sermon that uh, they had a rule for all of their uh, teenage girls that they could, and I don't know why the rule is for girls but not for boys, but nevertheless, the rule was you can't look a male, whether he's 14 or 40, you can't look a male in the eyes longer than three seconds. That was the rule. I know, crazy, right? I'll explain why in a minute. So, like, our, like, you know, my contemporaries who are in 10th grade are, like, serving lunch to these people, and they're, like, heads down. Like, they're, like, what is wrong with these people? Like, what is going on? And finally, we figure it out, and they came back, like, several years in a row. And here's, here's how the thought process went. God says that hooking up before you're married is a bad idea. Not just a bad idea, sin. Let me be more clear. It's, it's wrong. And what happened? If, if we want to get our young people that are in 10th grade not to do this, well, then we need them not to date. So there was this rule at one point in time that you couldn't date unless you were 16 or, or, or older. And then that became, why are we allowing dating in the first place? If they're not dating, then, then they won't hook up with each other. So there was a rule in the youth group and in the church, no dating allowed. And good luck with that. Good luck trying to convince all the parents and all the teens, like, you know, have at it. So that wasn't working. So they said, you know what? They, they date because they look at each other and they talk to each other. And here's, it all happens when they're like walking around and all of a sudden this day of epiphany happens and he looks at her and she looks at him and sparks start flying. And all of a sudden they're Twitter-pated and they're drawn to each other. So they start to talk and then they start to date. And then, and then all of a sudden she's pregnant. So in order for her to not get pregnant, we're going to back this baby all the way up. No looking at each other. And I'm not making this up. This, this is true. Now, sheesh, well-intentioned, I'm sure. But here's what just happened. God put this boundary up and said, hey, stay off of each other until you're married. You got this whole big backyard to play in, but I'm going to put a fence around it to keep you safe and to keep the predators away from you. I'm going to guard you with this. It's good. And they said, hey, that fence, it's only like three foot high. Let's build a six-foot fence. So they built a fence inside the fence. No dating until you're 16. Well, that's not good enough. I mean, a grizzly bear could climb over that fence. So let's put a fence inside the fence. Let's make it a metal fence. And let's make it eight foot high inside of that one. No dating at all. And let's do another fence and another. And before you know it, you got a two-foot square by a two-foot square to play in your yard. And you're just boxed in. You got nothing to do. Why? Legalism, that's why. All of these man-made rules and trappings that are so far downstream from what God ever said in his word in the first place. Probably produced out of a right heart, but really detrimental for someone's spiritual growth because 10 years later, I don't know, probably give it a year or something, Netflix will probably make a documentary on it or something. It'll, it'll come out. So it's... it's ends up being raised in prison. It reproduces uniformity. It's this idea that you can just follow our rules and you'll be spiritual. Here's our Ikea kit for assembling your spiritual life, which relationships are more complicated than little kits and formulas, including your relationship with God. Then it ends up dying either compliant and joyless or springboard out of here and I'm rebellious. And then you're like, well, why are, why are they leaving the church? Well, uh, sheesh, I would too. Like, that's so far removed from what it was supposed to be. So what do we do? We stay focused on Jesus. Now, read with me if you would. This is the end. Verse 4. I'm just going to survey this to get it clear in your head. Chapter 2, verse 4. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. This is tricky. The words seem like they make sense. It's crafty. But I'm trying to help you. Verse number 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. It's after the tradition of men and the rudiments of the world. It's not after Christ. Verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward. Verse 22. 
They're all the parish with the using. They're after the commandments and the doctrines of men. This is a man-made deceptive way of thinking that you need to be aware of. It is a system of thought that is manufactured. It is not of God. It's rooted in spiritual intimidation. So run from it. Don't let them judge you. And stay centered on the body, on the substance, on Jesus. Now, if you would, take your communion cups. We're going to move into this, and I want to read, nestled right in the middle of everything I just read, is this beautiful, beautiful articulation of the substance, of the treasure, of the body of Jesus. Here it is, Colossians 2, same chapter, verse number 13. You... Being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. You were dead and he made you alive, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out, taking away, erasing the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us. All of those things we did that were wrong, they were transgressions, they were sins in the face of God. He's removed all of it. He took it out of the way. He nailed it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What is this saying? This is saying that Jesus is the one who took dead people and made them alive. Jesus is the one who forgave all of our sins. Jesus is the one who erased all of our sins in his cross. Jesus is the one who defeated sin, who defeated Satan in his cross. So stay focused on him. When you come to church, when you sing, when you have communion, stay focused on him. I love what the choir is saying. This, the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost that we could stand forgiven at the cross. Don't be moved away from that. Nothing is better than that.